Welcome everyone to the latest Regulation Around the World podcast. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge here at Norton Rose Fulbright. In our latest issue of Regulation Around the World, we take a look at operational resilience, which remains one of the top supervisory priorities for regulators around the world. In our written Regulation Around the World update, we look at developments concerning operational resilience in 15 jurisdictions. And one of the key themes that we see is that regulators have become more aware of how firms in the financial services sector have become increasingly dependent on technology and how any disruption to this technology could have serious repercussions from an operational resilience perspective. Now, in this podcast, we take a deeper dive into three of the jurisdictions that we cover in the written update, these being the United Kingdom, the European Union, and the United States. Now, for the section on the United Kingdom, I'm very pleased to be joined by Hani Sadar, EMEA Head of Risk Advisory at Northern Rose Fulbright. Hani, it's great to have you here and to draw on your many years of experience. And to start with, I wanted to ask you a fairly general question. Whilst firms in the UK withstood the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic fairly well, the FCA and the PRA introduced new rules on operational resilience, which came into force earlier this year. So can you describe some of the more common operational resilience failings that you have historically seen in firms? Certainly, Simon, and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you on this call. Um, Look, the last few years have seen operational resilience pushed to the limits. I mean, it's really a very important area for the financial services industry. Um, and of course, the impacts to the wider economy um, are quite profound. Now, common issues that we've seen facing firms include IT outages. Now, this remains a key priority for firms to ensure they've addressed and more importantly, mitigated for should an event occur. I mean, a huge amount of the UK infrastructure relies on the continuity of financial services, everything from payrolls through to the payments services and systems, e-commerce, and of course, orderly markets. So when you get a significant outage, there's a considerable risk that comes with that, and the economy feels it immediately. So that has been very much on the, uh, the regulator and authorities' mind. Now, the pandemic, the recent COVID-19 one, really tested firms' metal we saw that some of the better firms were able to provide a relatively seamless service throughout lockdown. Now, this needed a special kind of training um, that we haven't come across before, as the safe walls of offices were no longer at hand. Thus, confidentiality of data, cybersecurity, communication management, consistency of communication, quality of communication to clients had to be very well run despite a dispersed workforce. I mean, customers ultimately need to experience a seamless service, regardless of circumstances and regardless of where staff are located. And that's the key mantle for those firms. Firms must also have contingency plans in place so that any event like this that might happen in the future, they're well prepared for. So we've certainly seen this being a common problem. Firms that didn't, by comparison, um, fare so well were ones that didn't push in particular, the notion of seamless service and or using the right infrastructure to properly facilitate home working. And then of course, cyber issues, phising still remain a key concern, especially as we've seen the rise in e-commerce, not just during the pandemic, but more broadly. Now, a key issue for firms has always been and will continue to be the security and the vulnerability 
that comes from uh, increased use um, of the internet and e-commerce. So firms will have to keep on top of the latest expertise, technology, staff training, awareness, et cetera. And in particular, having a strong line of defense to cope with that. So where that, again, that has gone wrong is where firms haven't invested properly either in time or expertise to manage cyber issues. Thanks for that. I just want to move to the new rules that the FCA and the PRA have introduced. And among other things, they required that firms conduct a further review of their important business services at least once a year or whenever there is a material change to their business or the market in which they operate. Now, this does not mean that firms need to conduct the whole exercise once a year, but rather review their existing identification against changes to their business or operating market over the course of the year. Can you offer our listeners any insights or tips as to how firms can do this? Yes, certainly, Simon. I mean, this has been a big area as part of the operational resilience um, uh, initiative that the regulators have put forward to the industry. And of course, it's one of the first points that firms were looking at. Now, as we know, firms were required to have identified their important business services just recently this year. Um, and it has been an arduous task. Look, I think let's look at it from the point of view, firstly, of guidance, which has directed firms around what an important business service is. Um, and effectively, what was key is, um, is a service whereby um, a service is provided either by a firm or by another person on behalf of a firm. And in particular, um, where there could be intolerable levels of harm to one or more of the firm's clients or where there could be a risk to the soundness, stability or resilience of the UK financial system. So already there you have a clue in how and where firms would prioritise around their important business services. I mean, clearly firms will look, and this I think is really important, is the size and nature of the consumer base and what it reasonably can expect in terms of operational resilience planning and identification of important business services. A practical level, it's been a challenge, for example, if you have a particularly small niche market with a very small customer base, do you prioritize that over a national infrastructure, even though arguably critically, that small area, such as a branch in a remote location, is the only serviceable branch for that region. Therefore, it is arguably very critical compared to a national infrastructure, which has a very large customer base, but more support infrastructure and mitigation around it compared to that localized branch. And I think that's something that's really important to know because from a firm's perspective, they have to look at both inequality. Yeah. Also as well, any risk of customer harm or outage will clearly be high on the list. So therefore, prioritizations of business services where an outage could cause an absolute uh, cessation of service will also be something that firms must prioritize. I think it's really important as well that firms should be able to work out quite easily which services their end users really rely on them for. I think the pandemic was a good example of this because what happened during the pandemic is that firms had available now key information on what services were most important to their end users. What firms can then do is using that base uh, really fully understand as a starting point what services have the highest customer risk around them because we had that ability during the pandemic to really see where customers were focused. So I think using data to properly assess what business services, um, what the prioritized business services are, 
is a good thing to do. Now, the FCA has also encouraged firms to identify their important business services holistically, considering in, in the broader context of size, complexity, and focusing on achieving operationally resilient outcomes. So again, reverting back to that idea of either a national platform versus a localized branch, you have to consider from two aspects, clearly the national infrastructure from a volume perspective is going to be the higher priority. But if one branch sits in a particular localized area or a small localized office, then that has a concentration risk around it. So the two need to be looked at from a similar lens. Ah, okay. Um, the only other thing to mention, which I think is important, is I would say that firms utilize their three lines of defense model. So uh, the FCA has asked firms to conduct a further review at least once a year or whenever there is a material change to the business or the market in which they operate in. Now, the three lines of defense model can be very useful. For example, internal audit as part of their review planning process can help and assist firms in understanding market context and where review cycles need to end. Thanks, Annie. Very interesting. Um, I just want to pick up on another point now. Uh, accountability is another important component of embedding mm. operational resilience. Where do you often see failings in this respect? I think it's, it's it, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to top-down governance. In other words, um, it's about the effectiveness of senior management. And we know as part of operational resilience, the regulators have identified key sponsors within the senior executive board that would be overarching responsible for this. They will then disseminate the messages down to the various parts of the business. And where there's a potential failing is where that message hasn't been properly received and acted on. And the best way to ensure that is training, training, training. I can't stress that enough. Successful organizations have really implemented the right training, which is calibrated to the different parts of the business. In other words, the type of training compliance would receive might be different to what the front office and client facing roles would receive. And then of course, where you have more remote types of businesses, say client services that don't meet customers, um, they would have a very specific kind of training that would incorporate relevant risks. And I think that along with more formal and actually informal committees to manage operational risk and keep it in focus should mitigate some of those failings potentially. Thanks, Hanny. That's really interesting. And this is my final question. The FCA and the PRA have issued a new discussion paper on operational resilience and critical third parties. Now, in light of the discussion paper, what would be your key recommendations for service providers and also for firms and financial market infrastructures? Yes, yeah, certainly, Simon. I mean, I think the whole issue around um, service providers and their third parties is a key arrangement, and it's something historically um, that has got increasing focus. I mean, it's, it's, it's undoubted that from a um, supplier point of view, the customer needs a seamless service, regardless of whether they choose to use particular third parties for expertise and therefore either create an arrangement or fully outsource. And I think what's really important for service providers um, and various firms that operate in the market, that there is a strong sense of collaboration between them. Um, and I think some of the downstream elements that come as a result of some of the regulatory requirements that then get sent to the um, third parties, um, it's very important that those are fully understood 
Um, and this isn't just a question of having the right contractuals, it's about the right dialogue between the various parties. The other thing I would mention as well, which is really important for firms, um, is that they fully uh, undertaken exercises as part of their uh, long-term planning on operational resilience to understand the implications of working with various third parties, creating the right contingencies, and fully understanding the third parties' uh, infrastructure in the contents to various things such as impact tolerances um, and risks of outage. I think in conclusion, what it needs is a very strong narrative between the various parties to ensure that there is a, a cohesive operational resilience strategy being implemented. Thanks, Andy, that's very helpful. Always a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. In this part of the podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Anna Carrier, a Senior Government and Regulatory Affairs Advisor in our Brussels office. Anna, thanks so much for joining us today. And a significant development in Europe is the adoption of DORA, which is intended to consolidate and upgrade information and communication technology risk requirements throughout the European Union's financial services sector. Now, we discussed DORA in the Regulation Around the World update, but to begin with, can you just say a few words as to why third country ICT service providers to EU financial entities should be mindful of the new regulation? Yes, um, hi, welcome everyone. I'm happy to be on the podcast and happy to cover that. So as we know, uh, DORA is the first European level legislative initiative aiming to introduce a harmonized and comprehensive framework on digital operational resilience for European financial institutions. As an absolute novelty in the European financial services legislative framework, DORA will bring critical third-party service providers within a direct oversight of the European Supervisory Authorities, or ESAs. This means that if and when DORA is formally adopted and published in the official journal, major cloud computer service providers will become subject to the European Financial Services Supervisory Framework. But more broadly, DORA will provide a principle-based sound monitoring of ICT third-party risk requirements. So to this end, DORA will set out the relevant responsibilities of the financial entities in line with the proportionality principle, including an obligation to establish a strategy on ICT third-party risk requirements regarding documentation, record-keeping, pre-contractual analysis, information security, audit, termination rights, exit strategies, and other. But as mentioned earlier, DORA will set out a separate set of provisions applicable to critical third-party service providers that will be designated by the ESAS as such, and on the basis of a list of criteria set out in the legislation. Alternatively, there's a possibility for ICT third-party service provider to opt in into oversight regime. But why is it relevant for third-country ICT service providers? Well, it is relevant because while DORA does not create the license regime for such a critical third-party service providers established outside of the European Union, financial entities will not be able to use a service of an ICT third-party service provider that will be deemed critical according to the DORA criteria established in a third country unless such a third-country entity will establish in the EU a subsidiary within 12 months from the designation. So it is very much relevant knowing that in the real world, um, quite a number of those um, providers is actually established in, in various countries outside of the EU. 
Okay, thanks, Anna. And another important component of DORA is ICT risk management requirements. Um, in your view, what are the headlines here? So, yes, um, definitely. ICT risk management is the core of DORA requirements. So, other than the management of third-party ICT risks that we have just mentioned. So, broadly speaking, financial entities in scope of DORA will have, in, will have to have in place comprehensive internal governance and control frameworks for ICT risks. This will include a requirement for the management body of a financial institution to define, approve, oversee, and be accountable for the implementation of all arrangements related to the ICT risk management framework. Financial institutions will have to establish an internal role to monitor the arrangements concluded with ICT third-party service providers or designate a member of senior management for the purpose of overseeing the related risk exposures and documentation. Financial entities will also be obliged to build and maintain a sound, comprehensive, and well-documented ICT risk management framework that would include strategies, policies, procedures, ICT protocols, and tools for the purpose of protection of all relevant physical components and infrastructures, premises, data centers, and sensitive designated areas. So as such, they will have to have and have to have in place and maintain updated ICT systems, protocols, and tools, as well as to identify and detect developments that pose a potential source of an ICT risk, especially those configurations that interconnect with internal and external ICT systems. In addition, financial entities will also have to have in place measures establishing backup policies and recovery methods as well as establish appropriate learning and evolving frameworks, allowing them to gather information on vulnerabilities and cyber threats for the purposes of an analyzing their likely impact on their digital operational resilience. And DORA will require such a financial entities to establish and implement a specific ICT-related incident management process to identify, track, log, categorize, and classify ICT-related incidents. And finally, testing, which is a subject, a separate subject matter for DORA. Financial entities will have to put in place a sound and comprehensive digital operational resilience testing program comprising of ICT testing tools, systems, and methodologies as set out and prescribed in the actual text of the, of the, of the legislation. Okay, thanks, Ella. Um, you touched on this when you gave your answer to the, to the first question, so, so let's expand. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about where DORA has now got to in the EU legislative process, including where we currently are with uh, the Joint Oversight Forum, which a lot of people are very interested in? Um, when is the draft legislation expected to come into force? Sure, we'll be happy to. But long story short, so while the text had been, uh, the Torah, DORA text had been agreed between the co-legislators, it is still pending formal approvals and publications in the EU official journal, which as we know will set the implementation clock ticking. So this process should be all done and completed hopefully by the end of this year and latest early next year, and DORA will become applicable 24 months following its entry into force. So the current estimate um, is end of 2024, early 2025, for the relevant requirements to become applicable. So um, obviously the fact that the formal approval and entry into force of DORA is pending is affecting the establishment of the Joint Oversight Forum for the purposes of the carrying out oversight of critical third-party ICT service providers. 
So just by way of background, the Oversight Forum will be um, established as a subcommittee of the joint ESAS committee for the purpose of supporting the work of the joint committee and the lead overseer in the area of ICT, third-party risk across financial sectors. It will be comprised of chairpersons of three ESAs, so the, the ESMA, EBA, and EOPA, representatives of the relevant national competent authorities, the executive directors of all ESAs, and one representative from the European Commission, the European Systemic Risk Board, the European Central Bank, and ENISA as observers. But as mentioned just a moment ago, we are still some time away before the forum is actually constituted, as we are still awaiting the final text to be published. Okay, thanks, Anna. And as my final question, I just want to turn to another uh, key, EU, key EU legislative proposal, which is uh, MECA. And on the Norton Rose Fulbright website, there's a briefing note on MECA, which you, you authored. Um, briefly, for today's purposes, if there were two or three headlines that non-EU firms should take from Mika, what would they be? Yes, so just maybe for those who are less familiar with the acronyms that we're using here um, in the EU, Mika is the recently agreed European legislation that will set out harmonized framework for markets in crypto assets, and that will cover broadly issuance and offering to the public in the EU of crypto assets also crypto assets other than stable coins, stable coins and provision of services in crypto assets. But from a third country perspective, from a third country firm's perspective, perhaps the most relevant bit concerns provision of services in crypto assets, crypto assets as this is likely to have the broadest application. And Mika will not include a separate regime for third country crypto asset service providers while allowing some time limited reliance on the reversal station approach and um, third country persons planning to actively solicit clients based in the EU and or to promote actively advertise their services in the EU, they will need to obtain authorization as an EU crypto asset service provider. So conversely, authorized crypto asset service providers authorized according to Mika will be able to provide their services cross border in all EU jurisdictions, which is akin to the passport rights that we all know from other pieces of European financial services legislation. But following the application of Mika, the commission will be tasked to conduct an assessment of uh, whether an equivalence regime should be established for third country crypto asset service providers. So something to be closely monitoring going forward from a third country um, uh, service provider's perspective. But another thing um, to note is that um, any person wishing to issue stable coins um, in Europe, which is slightly different types of, um, as we know, undertaking than the provision of service, will have to be a legal person established in the EU, and only such persons will be able to apply for the relevant authorizations. So again, there's no third country regime for stablecoins issuance and offering in the EU, but the Commission will be tasked to evaluate potential establishment of such a regime in the future. So I guess those are the kind of key takeaways um, in that respect. Thanks, Anna. That's really helpful. And, and also, thank you for your comments on Dora's. That concludes this section of the podcast. In this part of the podcast, we're going to focus on developments in the United States. And I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Byrne, a financial services partner based in our New York office. Tim, it's great to have you. And to start with, in October 2020, a number of US regulators co published 
and interagency paper drawing together sound practices to strengthen operational resilience. Uh, for our listeners, could you describe some of the more common operational resilience failings that you have historically seen in firms? Uh, certainly. Uh, Simon, it's uh, great to, to join you. Now, in recent years, uh, financial institutions have experienced significant challenges from a wide range of disruptive events, um, including technology-based failures, uh, cyber incidents, pandemic outbreaks, natural disasters, ransomware attacks. And these can combine such that cybersecurity risk has been amplified by the COVID pandemic. To some extent, the specific concerns are evident from the guidance for what constitutes sound practices for cyber risk management. In other words, what constitutes a good practice often reflects a failing that was observed. Thus, timely detection of anomalous activity. Uh, this indicates that anomalous activity was not timely detected. Third-party contracts uh, that don't clearly define roles and responsibilities. Uh, improper disposal of hardware or other assets. Uh, so if the disposal is not done in a secure manner, it's a problem. Failure to upgrade information systems before technical support is no longer available from the developer. So overall, cybersecurity is a critical component of operational resilience and remains the top risk identified at supervised firms. A geopolitical risk or geopolitical unrest is increasing the risk. And this is uh, particularly so uh, with the Russian uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine, which has heightened geopolitical tensions. Okay, Tim, uh, thank, thank you for that. So just moving on to the second question now. In July 2021, US regulators also issued joint guidance addressing risk management of third-party service providers. Whilst most of the proposed guidelines streamlined and updated existence guidance, uh, there were some new guidelines. Are any of these noteworthy? Yeah, the changes are mostly a matter of degree. So there are uh, some questions as to the scope of business arrangements that would be covered by the guidance. Uh, there are questions about how much flexibility senior management of a bank will have to take a risk-based approach to managing third-party relationships. There are scope questions, such as the due diligence requirements as to subcontractors of third-party service providers. And then some things are not necessarily new, but are emphasized, such as the importance of planning and due diligence in establishing third-party relationships and the need for competent personnel uh, to perform those important functions. Then there are some other areas, uh, such as the treatment of uh, data aggregators, so the open banking issue. Um, and you know, these parties have a distinct role in the financial system, and you know, their role in the treatment of those uh, parties uh, will need to be addressed uh, in the guidance. Okay. And just keeping with the joint guidance for the moment, I mean, do they impact non-US-based third-party service providers? Well, it, certainly the level of risk to a bank um, can increase um, by using a uh, 
a non-US based um, third party service provider. And so you have things like legal due diligence being key. Uh, banks have to understand choice of law provisions they, and make sure they have them in their agreements. They need to understand uh, privacy issues and information flow laws um, of the non-US jurisdictions. So the regulators um, asked for comments uh, specifically on what additional clarifications would be helpful um, in connection with um, the non-US third-party service providers. Uh, you know, one, one area would be you know, whether non-US subsidiaries of US companies raise different issues from other non-US companies. Okay, thanks, Tim. And as my final question, I mean, how far are we from the guidance being finalized? Yeah, it's not clear, um, but it's not stopping the regulatory uh, and supervisory uh, initiatives um, of the agencies. You know, FinTech is transforming how banks operate and the relationships that bank ha banks have with um, third-party service providers is um, just becoming an ever more important consideration for the regulators. So I think there's a lot that's going into the finalization of this guidance. Um, as I say, though, it hasn't stopped other initiatives, right? Over the past few years, the Federal Reserve, along with the other um, US banking regulators, federal banking regulators, the FDIC and the OCC, you know, have established um, a program um, you know, on cybersecurity uh, reviews um, at the largest and most complex um, financial institutions. Um, the Fed just last week published proposed amendments um, to the operational risk management requirements for designated financial market utilities. Uh, and that um, guidance, um, to some extent, <clears throat> um, refers to the, the proposed guidance on um, third-party service providers, um, you know, in recognition that third-party risk management is an important part of the risk management of financial market utilities. Uh, so the, there are several agencies um, involved uh, in these initiatives, so they may want to coordinate and make sure that they are thinking about these issues together. And so, um, you know, when final uh, regulations and guidance uh, comes out, you know, they're consistent. Um, because the um, FMU guidance, proposed guidance, um, or proposed amendments to the regulation was just issued for a 60-day comment period, I think we still have some waiting to do um, for the final guidelines on um, oversight of uh, third-party service providers. Thanks for that, um, Tim, on updating us on the timeline. Uh, just a final question uh, before you go. Um, We've spoken about cyber, we've spoken about third-party service providers, but as you know, there are a number of other components to operational resilience. And I just wondered in the time we had left, you'd like to say a few words about that. Yes, yeah, certainly. The you know, overall operational risk management is key. Um, business continuity planning, recovery and resolution planning, 
know, all these um, in the context where the sound practices are informed by rigorous scenario analysis. And all this in the context where effective governance grounds the sound practices. To a large extent, governance is a key component. You know, it's the first category um, in the uh, agency's um, sound practices for cyber risk management. Thus, uh, designated roles and responsibilities, independent risk management, constant monitoring and improvement of the um, cybersecurity program and overall um, you know, operational uh, resilience uh, capabilities uh, of the organization. Okay, Tim, thanks for that. And this concludes the US section of the podcast. And that concludes this Regulation Around the World podcast on operational resilience. As mentioned in the introduction, in our written update, we cover developments on operational resilience in 15 jurisdictions, being the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, the European Union, Netherlands, France, Germany, Luxembourg, Italy, Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, UAE, and South Africa. The update can be found on our Regulation Around the World webpage on the Northern Rose Fulbright website. The webpage also houses previous editions of Regulation Around the World, covering topics such as anti-money laundering, sanctions, horizon scanning, and crypto assets. Many thanks for joining us today. Goodbye. Thank you.